0: All right, if you can go to Genesis chapter two, feels like we we've been uh looking in Genesis two for quite a while <clears throat> but nonetheless, a little more now looking at particularly at uh twenty four and twenty five, just to kind of focus it um, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we thank you for the scriptures God breathed through the prophets who were carried by the Spirit. And we need that same Spirit to help us to understand the Scriptures and all that they imply. And so grant us the Spirit, uh, not because we're worthy, but because of Jesus. So that our need for Jesus is revealed. And that His sufficiency for that need is also revealed. Uh, To the praise of Your glorious grace. Amen. It's kind of interesting uh, you know, being in my fifties um for a variety of reasons. And one of them is uh the numerous changes that have taken place within our society within those fifty years. Um I was amazed once when I went to uh, Epcot and we went in that first thing where it goes through the technological changes and I thought of my grandmother and all the things that she's seen going from the radio to, you know, black and white TV to color TVs and microwave and all that stuff. Well, when we think about marriage, uh, if we were on a similar ride, we, we would see, um, when I was a kid, the institution of no-fault divorce. And um, the time when my daughter was born, our many states within our nation were wrestling with that idea of same-sex marriage. And it was legal in some states and not legal in others. And then in uh, 2015, we had the uh, Obergefell versus Hodges decision in the Supreme Court. And so uh, there's a sense in which part of my life uh, has been noted by increasing marital chaos. And the same thing with your lives. We've all lived in that. And it's an important kind of question for us as Christians to to ask. Uh, What are we to make of all of this? Uh, How are we to process this and understand it? Uh, Where are we to stand on some of the issues uh, of of our day that still linger? And so uh, our big question this morning is how should Christians think about marriage in our very pluralistic society? And that's not a very unimportant question. And as we did with everything else we've done in this uh, little mini-series, we're going to walk... Uh, through creation, through fall, through redemption, and ultimately through consummation, uh, to try and answer uh, this rather um, kind of big question uh, that is there before us. now, if we think about creation, we also kind of start with a with another question, uh, and that w- where in the world did this institution of marriage come from, and why? Uh, that really drives the dimensions of how people Understand marriage, okay. Uh, evolutionary theory or Darwin thought, Darwinist thought, basically sees marriage as a social convention that has been passed from culture to culture, which amazingly is found in every culture. You'd think over the millennia that it, it would drop out somewhere, right? Uh, especially with what people today keep talking about with marriage. Uh, And it really seems uh, all about survival of the species. It exists for the purposes of procreation. (coughs) Um, It's part of the instinctual drive uh, that we supposedly experience. Um, If we were to look at Greek culture, it's rather interesting. I wish I'd seen this uh, the week before uh, in my reading, but I didn't. Um, (coughs) But uh, there was a time... This is the Greek myth uh, that Zeus was angry because Prometheus had given fire to the men. Now, at that point in their myth, there were only males. There were no women. And so the first woman was actually Pandora, whom Zeus created uh, to give to the men um, and to bring trouble into their lives. And so on the one hand, she was made as alluring. Uh, someone to whom they would be attracted. But on the other hand, he placed all of these troublesome qualities about her so that she would actually bring frustration and futility to uh, these men who now had fire. Greater capacity. Interesting. When we think about it, when we look at the Scriptures, we see a very different kind of uh, unfolding in all of this. Um, we see in God's great story... <coughs> That Adam was alone. And yet Adam, if we look at chapter 1, Adam, uh, humanity was called to first fill the earth, multiply and fill, and then to subdue and rule it as God's representatives. And so when when we think about marriage, we have to necessarily think, about these creation mandates that were given to humanity. That that marriage does not arrive in a vacuum, but it actually arrives within this context of God's larger design for humanity. And so we see Adam who is alone. God says he needs a helper who is compatible or suitable for him for the fulfillment of those mandates. And so uh, even as we saw from the Malachi 2 passage, companionship is an important part of marriage. We we cannot reduce marriage to companionship. The point is not that he was alone like he had no friends. Adam had a fellowship with God that you and I can only dream about. And so let us not think that, you know, here's poor Adam sitting in the garden twiddling his thumbs going, Oh, what was me? I'm the only human being alive. He's not, uh, you know, sort of like Robinson Crusoe on the island. Okay? And yet God recognizes that Adam cannot fulfill his design purposes as a solo human being. That he needs other human beings. And in particular, people who are, so to speak, compatible or suitable for him. Adam hasn't figured this out yet. And so God brings the animals before Adam, and, and Adam names all the animals and exerts uh, his uh, creational um, authority over them as God's image. But an, a helper suitable for him is, is not found, and now, now Adam sort of feels like, hey, what about me? So God puts him to sleep. And so the God who created Adam from the earth has now created Eve from his rib in order to help Adam in his work in the garden and to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to rule it. And so God institutes marriage in order to fulfill a greater purpose than simply marriage, and that would be the creation mandate. But what we need to recognize here is the mutual help that Adam and Eve were to have. They helped each other. It was not simply that she helped him, but also that he helped her. Martin Luther notes that next to God's Word, (coughs) there is no more precious treasure than the holy ordinance of marriage. God's highest earthly gift is a spiritually-minded, cheerful, God-fearing, home-keeping wife with whom you can live in peace and with whom you can trust with your property, body, and life. So now, while we might have some questions about that home-keeping part in terms of whether or not women can work outside the home, um, we should recognize that he sees women as the highest A godly wife is the highest earthly gift that a man can receive. And conversely, if we sat him in this chair and asked Martin, what is the uh, highest earthly gift that a godly woman could receive, Martin would probably say, a godly husband. Okay, Mutual benefit for both. We see this uh, in the earlier part of the text. Oh, not the earlier part of the text. All right, but <coughs> Genesis 2, when Moses assesses this and says basically lets us know what the point and implication of uh the creation of Eve is and why it's important that go that, that Adam goes, This is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Moses provides these imperatives for a man is to leave his father and mother and to cleave, to use the older English since it rhymes with the first, uh with his new wife. In other words, uh, the man is intended, and this is future generations because, of course, Adam had no parents to leave, right? Okay. So it is intended that a man, a young man, leaves his family of origin in order to form a brand new primary earth relationship with this woman with whom he is intended to stick close to. The cleave. We see that this man and this particular woman, Adam and Eve, were naked together, and they were not ashamed, or another way of translating that would be disconcerted. didn't bother them that they were in this state together. In other words, they were comfortable, and they were trusting of one another. So we see immediately pretty much, uh, the intimacy that the two of them enjoyed as they had both found someone who was suitable for them and was of a mutual help as they begin to go on this great journey to fulfill God's design and purpose for them. And so if we're to sum up, <coughs> oh, or rather, let's not sum up yet. I got ahead of myself. This thing's happened because I cough. Um, not only did they leave and cleave, but they become one flesh. They they form this this new union. Uh, they're not physically one flesh, but they united in that they share all of life, that they share all of their own resources, uh, that they share their earthly destiny. We see that reflected in the the vows that we take at marriage. You know, those words that we wish we sometimes didn't say later on, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, riches or poverty. What that points to is, if I'm rich, Amy's rich. If I'm poor, Amy's poor. If one of us sick is sick and suffering, the other one joins them in the suffering. Or not to be alone, and if one is rejoicing in the great blessings of God of, of various kinds, then the other one too is with them rejoicing in the great blessings of God. That is what it means to be of one flesh. That was part of it, anyway. And so we see that uh, God designs marriage as this covenantal bond between a man and a woman in order to fulfill His mission. If we want to see the design of God, that's what it is. Uh, This covenantal bond. One man, one woman, His mission, not our own. So as we move to the fall, we we kind of have this question, <coughs> how did something so beautiful become so messed up, painful, and confusing? How is it that husbands and wives can be so distant from one another? How husbands and wives... Can be at each other 's throats, uh, how husbands and wives can take advantage of each other in, a, in what can sometimes be a rather destructive sort of relationship, as we 've done before let 's kind of think through how some other cultures have thought about marriage Now this is a reflection of the fall let 's go back to Greece. remember uh, their <clears throat> their myth about the creation of Pandora. And so, uh, marriage was part of the the stuff that was in the box that no one wanted to open, or should have opened. But we see that in Greece, women were considered to be no better than slaves. They were essentially prisoners under house arrest. They, they basically stuck to the, the the family plot. Okay. When you when you think of that in light of the myth about Pandora, it's almost no wonder that Greece had such prevalence of homosexuality and pederasty, so much corruption and sin. Because their whole understanding of marriage was so warped and corrupt. When we get to the Roman Empire, uh, we see that the purpose of wives was primarily to expand the empire by having children. And so they were married young in order to maximize childbearing years. So, you know, um, I'd probably be planning right now for Micah's wedding. And Jaden would already be married and, and, you know, she would possibly already have a child. Because that was her purpose. To have children, to expand the kingdom, the empire of Rome. Okay. And so on the one hand, we see this as a reduction of of the many purposes of marriage, the great design of marriage, down to one thing, procreation. But we also see a corruption because it's not for the purposes of God's kingdom, but it was for the purposes of the Roman Empire. So we see they have a bad starting point for understanding marriage, and therefore as a result, men could divorce their wives for infertility. Hasta la vista, baby. I need some people to make soldiers for the Roman Empire. But not only that, but because the the marriage bed was simply for procreation, they had a very corrupt view that sought all of their sexual pleasure outside of marriage. And so while our culture is corrupt, it is not nearly as corrupt as the Roman Empire was. When you read about the excesses and perversions of the Caesars, you recognize rather quickly that, that compared to them, our presidents are choir boys. They've done almost nothing in comparison to what Nero and Caligula and, and Tiberius and the others did. In fact, Nero married two men. So the first same-sex marriage didn't happen in the 20th century or the 21st century. It happened at least in the 1st century, if not earlier. He was not the only Caesar to have married a man. Another one did as well. I've lost track of his many names. One is unpronounceable, and then his uh, name as Caesar is Marcus Aurelius. I've lost track. Great corruption of marriage. How does the Scripture handle this corruption. (laughs) We recognize, if we go to Genesis 3, and we're going to spend more time there next week kind of looking at this, but we see that Adam and Eve's disobedience ultimately was an overturning of what is commonly called male headship. And we say that because uh, all of God's commands were given to Adam. Okay, He was created first. The commands were given to him, and so... Uh, we see that while Eve sinned first, according to Paul, it was because of Adam's sin that the rest of humanity was plunged into sin and death. What we call that is covenant headship. And we see the same thing in the way of our salvation. We see Jesus obeying for all of his people, Okay, which is the the mirror side of what we see in Romans chapter five. We we see this as well kind of spelled out right there in the curse, because um, Adam listened to his wife instead of God. That was what the sin that was exposed in God's uh, pronouncement of the curse on Adam was. But when God speaks to Eve, he says in In terms of her curse, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now that's a very, in some ways confusing or um, not clear to us in a sense. But if we go to the very next chapter, we see these two words, desire and shall rule, used in a very similar context, where God is speaking to Cain, and he says that sin's desire is for you, but you must master it, or you must rule over it. And so the picture of sin there is sort of like, well, we watched one of the Jurassic movies yesterday for Asher's birthday, so it's like a a velociraptor ready to pounce and eat you. Okay, that's what sin wants to do. It wants to devour you. But God said to Cain that you must master it or rule it. So if we, if we see one chapter earlier, this idea of the curse, a woman's desire is to master her husband, but she will be ruled by him. And so what was intended to be a help has become a hindrance. What was what was designed to be beautiful has now become rather ugly when we think about it. Remember, it's a curse. It's not a good thing. It's judicial. It's meant to be uncomfortable. It's meant to drive people to Jesus. Okay, And so loving headship morphed into male dominance, which is seen in a variety of ways. One of which, right off the bat, in Genesis chapter 4, Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. And so one of the first manifestations of, of the curse upon marriage, <coughs> or how it played out, with respect to marriage, is polygamy. And if you weigh all of the societies that have practiced polygamy, there's only like four in which women had multiple husbands. All the rest, thousands of them, are men having multiple women. It's all in the guy's favor. Similarly, we see... it played out with concubines, second-class wives. wasn't enough to have multiple wives, but you know, now you have second-class wives who have no rights. Um, They just serve for your pleasure. Adultery became common. Divorce became a practice. And this was largely all one-sided in the men's favor when we look at it historically. We see in Exodus 20 that you shall not commit adultery. And yet what tends to have happened is that has been um, treated as though wives should not commit adultery. Men can do whatever they want. That's often how it's been interpreted. That's not what it was intended, however. We see with regard to divorce, Matthew 19, Jesus said because they're claiming that God comm- Moses commanded them to divorce their wives, he says, no, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. God's intention was not divorce. Divorce is actually a reflection of the hardness of people's hearts. Whether it's a stubborn refusal to forgive, or whether it's you're not satisfied and you're going to go somewhere else. as a reflection of the curse. We see this corruption also within the life of the Israel of Jesus' time because women were largely seen as to produce heirs, okay? Not uh not soldiers for the Roman empire, so to speak, but heirs because of their understanding of uh you know, property <coughs> as inheritance. And it's passed down and you're preserving people's names through heirs. And so, in light of this, there were, the debate that Jesus was, in, uh, was brought into in Matthew 19, uh, with regard to divorce, when they asked his opinion, there were two schools of thought. One from the Rabbi Hillel and the other from Rabbi Shammai. And both of them, well, and, and Hillel said that if your wife is infertile and she cannot produce heirs for you, well, you can divorce her. Shemai disagreed. You can't divorce your wife. But you can get another one. So much better. So much more godly. Right? So we see the way the sin just corrupted the institution of marriage. We see broken bodies in the form of things like infertility. But we also see, like from Romans one, those distorted desires and that twisted thinking that that work constantly as cultures rebel against God's design in Genesis one and two. So maybe uh, you know those Greek, Roman, and Jewish ideas are not as, as as close to home for us. So let's let's look at a couple that are a little more close to home, like romanticism, for instance. Where marriage becomes all about the relationship. The marriage itself. It's about seeking a soulmate, and And so what happens is you become like two ticks without a dog. You're demanding life and love from each other that you, you, you don't have an infinite supply. And so you go in and out of love. And when you go out of love, you look for the new soulmate. Marriage for love is a re- relatively new concept. Postmodernism. Marriage becomes reduced to self-actualization. That, that I, I marry Amy, so to speak, so that she can help me become the best me possible. And maybe I'll promise to help her become the best her possible. But if at some point in time I realize that she's not helping me become the best me possible as I define it, she becomes disposable. Amy and I went to a wedding ceremony not too long ago, and really, I think for both of us, it was the first time we've ever been to a completely secular marriage ceremony. And that's what it came down to. I help you follow your dreams, and you help me follow mine. Well, what help? What happens when your dreams conflict? You get into a serious mess, don't you? So that's what our culture produces. But what again do the scriptures say? If we go to James four, there's that question that is asked, <coughs> um, and I thought I had put it somewhere somehow. And I probably failed. That's me. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And so James brings these distorted desires to bear upon the relationships within the church. And one of the main places we can apply them is marriage. James brings this twisted thinking that we read about in Romans 1. And he kind of brings it to work and says that our marriage problems are a result of our distorted desires and our our twisted thinking. We have these passions, this need for pleasure. And if we don't get the pleasure we want, we fight about it. That's what he says. We quarrel about it. And he goes so far as to say, You murder. Some of us might say, oh, that's just ridiculous. How many people kill their spouses? If you watch a crime show, what do they always do? They always talk about first person you look at. Who is it? That spouse. Okay? How much domestic abuse is there? Because someone didn 't get what they wanted, and they took it out on the person they're supposed to love the most in this world that 's a function of the fall it's a function of the curse. but theres these desires there's what John Calvin called inordinate desire when we're going to talk about a lot more about that word next week, uh, but basically um, let's put it this way. Um, you, you've all had an earworm, right? Where a song gets in your head and you can't get it out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I worked at Ligonier, there was a guy a couple cubicles over from me, and all I had to go was "ba da da da," and Gary Newman's cars would run in his head all day long. He would hate me. <laughs> that ignorant desire is basically a temptation for a particular sin that runs through your head. You can't let it go. You keep thinking and going back to that particular sin so that you might gratify it. And if your marriage partner blocks that sin, conflict happens. We see the coveting or the envy that takes place. And I think what we really see here going on is is that when when that is operating, okay, we're not seeking God's kingdom, uh, but we're beginning to seek our own kingdom. And so uh, marriage problems for a Christian uh, emerge because you're beginning to seek your own kingdom. Either one or both of you. You're trying to get your own way as opposed to trying to follow God's way. You're trying to implement your design for marriage as opposed to following His design for marriage. If my marriage exists so that I can watch ESPN at every waking moment when I'm home and my wife will bring me beer and chips, I have a wrong understanding of marriage. And we're going to have trouble. Paul Tripp notes, this is one of the, the ironies of marriage, is that the person who was once your escape from responsibility... Think about that for a second. What, did you, what were you doing when you were dating? You were doing fun stuff, right? You were escaping from responsibility. This person has now become your most significant responsibility. They don't go away, and that's really irritating if you think if you think their goal is to make you happy. It's not. (laughs) Paul says in Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. And if you are reaping... Uh, if you're, sorry, if you're sowing your passions, if you're sowing your inordinate desires, if you're sowing your covetousness, you are going to reap destruction in your marriage. You're going to reap violence and bitterness, demandingness, hatred, ultimately. So we see that sin distorts God's good design of marriage with its selfishness. How can we fix this mess that we've made of marriage and marriages? (coughs) Well, the world's solution is basically to change the definition of marriage, to change the composition of marriage. In order to fit the earthy reality. And so they say, well, you know, you can be married to whomever you want. Even if they're the same sex as you. Another solution that gets floated is, well, you know, you can have as many as you want. And so now there's a, there's a greater push for polygamy. And I've seen people who are professing Christians arguing for polygamy on the internet. And I'm going, haven't you read the Bible? It never worked out. Every time you find it in the Scriptures. There was rivalry among the wives uh, and and their children. It was just a complete disaster. It was not God's best for you now. It was Satan's worst for you now. I don't know how anyone would want that. Or they change. There, There are proposals that marriage is a a five-year max, that you can sign up for five more years at the end, but it's not a a lifelong institution anymore. They want to redefine it that way too. How many ways can you redefine it so that it fits your corrupt understanding of it? But what we see instead is that Jesus in Matthew 19, (coughs) in this discussion of, of divorce, affirmed the design of creation. That's not how it was in the beginning, he said, For the, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus reaffirms that the creational design for marriage in that statement, and part of that creational design is one man, one woman. One of the things that we did at general Assembly, it, it probably didn 't get a much much press, okay, but nonetheless it took place. Um, our Our book of worship is not binding except for a couple chapters, and that would be um, the sacraments and membership, okay that, that probably makes no sense to any of you, uh, but don 't worry about it. work with me. The chapter on marriage was not binding, and so one of the things that we did to provide further support to the Westminster Standards, which say marriage is one man and one woman, we changed one of the paragraphs in that and gave it constitutional basis, saying that marriage is between one man and one woman only, which means that it excludes same-sex marriage as well as excluding polygamy. Now, that probably wasn't everybody's purpose in uh, the way they worded it, but the, 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 um, <clears throat> overtures committee, I think, found a really good compromise, uh, and put up with a really good thing. And our Presbyterians will be voting on that this year, and I see no reason why it won't go through. The PCA stands for biblical understanding of sexuality and marriage. We do. But not everybody does. Our culture certainly doesn't. And so we're surrounded by people who don't think like we do, and we kind of have to think about this. And what, what we we really ought to come down to is the fact that while our government government might view someone as married, God is not bound by that. And he still follows his design. So any government can say you can marry a, a cat or a dog, but it doesn't mean that in God's eyes you've married a cat or a dog. Marriage is one man, one woman. But to go further... The reason we read from Ephesians 5 is that we see that that, that passage connects marriage precisely to redemption and into our, our union with Christ in order to restore God's design for marriage. Now, it starts with that idea of submission. That word is used three times, uh, twice towards the wife, once towards the church. Okay, and that tends to get a lot of the press. Okay. Uh, It it teaches that a woman is intended to submit, not to men, but rather to her husband, as the church submits to Christ, who is her husband. And more on that in a little bit. The real main theme that runs through this passage, however, is love. Love which is mentioned twice as many times, six times. It's, I think it's the real focus. Most of the, these verses are addressing the husbands, not the wives. The husbands are intended, or, or, or called to love Christ as Christ loved the church. I remember the mistakes I made early in my marriage. Amy and I would have a, a difference of opinion about something, and I would I would resort to, "Don't you trust me?" What a arrogant fool! Of course, you didn't trust me. We were barely married. I hadn't earned any trust. Uh, and now I don't even bother asking her that question because I'm afraid of the answer. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, occasionally that happens. We see a similar statement here. Husbands in Colossians 3, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. While she is is submitting to his will, he is intended to serve her best interest, not his best interest as she grows and matures. And we see this reflected in the text because he says Jesus gave himself up for her. And so, husbands, you're intended to give yourselves up for her. Marriage for a husband is intended to be profound self-denial. Any of you like self-denial? Come on, let me see the hands. No, that's really hard. And so just as a wife needs to be filled with the Spirit in order to submit to her husband, so a husband needs to be filled with the Spirit so that he can offer himself, deny himself for his wife. I was talking with someone recently, and, and uh, it was about one of these areas in which Amy and I have a have a disagreement. It's not a sinful disagreement by any stretch of the imagination. And he said to me, Steve, why don't you just put your foot down and, and, and Get your way. And I, and I brought him to Ephesians 5. I said, I can't do that. I'm not called to put my foot down and get my way. I'm not called to be a dictator. I'm called to love Amy as Christ loved the church. And that means I give up what I want sometimes. It stinks. I want what I want. But we only understand God's design through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can only understand the design of marriage when we grasp the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we know what it's like to be loved completely and then offer ourselves in submission, then we understand what marriage is supposed to be like. As a husband loves his wife completely for her good, and therefore she responds with submission. Not a submission that is demanded of her, but one that is willingly offered because she knows she's loved. We see that Paul continues in talking about the work of Jesus for his people, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of the word. He, Jesus set her apart for himself, and then he purified her. And so marriage is, in a sense, you're setting one woman apart from yourself, and she agrees to it. You don't just go grab someone at the mall and say, You're mine. <laughs> and we bring her to Jesus, the cleanser. To purify her. So I think marriage it must involve a, a radical commitment to forgiveness in order to maintain a healthy marriage. That that we need to continually repent from our disordered desires and our twisted thinking if we're going to have a good marriage. Part of what this also means is that we're intended to point one another to Jesus and His work when sin is obvious. But I don't want you to focus on the other person's sin. Pray for it. Pray for their growth in grace. I'm currently filling out this report for Presbytery about Desert Springs, and that includes me and my marriage and stuff like that. So they they get an idea of how much they need to, you know, drag me behind a wagon. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> and, and, you know, one of the questions was, where is God at work in your wife? She hasn't answered that for me yet. But part of what I put down there was I'm so busy with my own sin I don't have time to focus on Amy's. i got enough to repent for. I don't need to be looking for sin in my wife for her to repent. Maybe I'm just a bigger sinner than you. But that's kind of how I process that. But here's the amazing thing. What Paul says there When he, when he quotes Moses about the one flesh, he says, and here's the mystery. It's Jesus in the church. Wow. Maybe it's because of places like Hosea 2 that we read where he prophesies the marriage of, between God and his people. And so, marriage is intended to point to this mysterious relationship between Christ and his people as bride and groom. And so Christ restores God's design in our marriages through his redemption. Briefly, consummation. That question, am I married to this person forever? Or to whom am I married? Because perhaps you are like Elizabeth Elliot this was this is what prompted the discussion in Matthew 22. <clears throat> Not Elizabeth Elliot, but a similar situation. Because remember, uh, Jim Elliot got killed as a missionary in Ecuador. And then um, she got remarried and he died. And I think another guy died too. and And when she died, she was married to Lars. So I can't remember if it's three or four guys that she's been married to. So the question would be, when Jesus comes, who she married to in heaven? It's a good question, right? Don't give the answer away. (laughs) (laughs) He got the right answer. Jesus responded to the Sadducees who asked this question, and he said, "For in the resurrection, now imagine," he says, "you don't understand the scriptures." And you don't understand the power of God, he says. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, <coughs> marriage, but are like angels in heaven who don't marry. Now, remember, be clear. It doesn't say you're an angel. You're not going to morph into an angel. You will always be a human being. But like the angels, you won't be given in marriage. So for those of you who, who don't like your spouse this morning and you don't have to raise your hands, don't worry, you're not going to be married to them forever. Okay. But I'm sad to, I'm sorry to say to those of you who deeply love your spouses, while you'll be with each other in heaven, you will not be married to them in heaven. Because we're neither married or given in marriage, according to Jesus. But what happens is that we, when Jesus returns at the consummation, we celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb the consummation of the union between Christ and the church that we see there in Revelation 19, which was part of our call to worship. Right now, the church is betrothed to Jesus. He's paid the wedding price in His death upon the cross. She's His. And she wants to be His. And when He returns, they enter into the fullness of their union Whatever that means, but the, the best picture of it is a husband and wife as one flesh. And so marriage serves God's purposes in creation and as a picture of our salvation. And so our marriage issues reflect that we have departed from God's design and that we are seeking to use marriage to fulfill our inordinate desires, to establish our kingdom instead of Christ's kingdom. And as a result, we need forgiveness for sins, and Jesus gave Himself for us in order to purchase that forgiveness in redemption. Not only that, but Jesus restores God's design in marriage, modeling loving sacrifice to prompt the church's loving submission. And so our imperfect marriages create in us a longing for the perfect marriage between Christ and the church. And so when you think about (coughs) God, marriage, and you, that's what you should be thinking about. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we thank You for for the gift of marriage and there can be no greater gift than a godly spouse and i, I thank you that you have gifted me with one and uh, father i also recognize that my, my marriage is not perfect and 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 all of our marriages suffer from the residue of the curse that we we still struggle with the, that twisted thinking we still struggle with those disordered desires and 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 give ourselves fully to our spouses, but hold back in an attempt to establish our own little kingdoms. Have mercy on us. And work powerfully by your Spirit to, to bring us back to your design um, and to remind us of the great provision of Jesus Christ for that. Uh, not just in the bearing of our sins, but also in the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that we will walk by the Spirit and display um, what marriage was intended to do was display salvation to the world. How two sinners can stay connected because of Christ. So, So be working that in us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.